We have been looking at uh, the parables that Jesus told this semester. And uh, one of the reasons why we're doing that is because Jesus told these little stories to intentionally frustrate you. To disrupt and sort of uh, screw with your previous categories of what you thought it was like to connect with God. And I think when you get frustrated and rattled and shocked, you actually come to terms with what he's actually saying rather than just importing all of your own assumptions into what you think he's been saying. So that's what we're doing. We're looking at the parables this semester, and we're going to look at just a small little section out of, uh, this says Luke 15 at the top. That's wrong. It should be Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46. Huge error. Reads this. I don't know who makes these, but they're an idiot. Uh, It says this in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is God's word for us to consider. If you would, let me just pray, and then we'll try to sort that out. So let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just the joy of being together, and uh, I thank you for these guys and girls who have taken a slice out of their life and their Tuesday night to come and uh, to hang out with us when they could be doing so many other things. And I know that there are a lot of different, there are a lot of folks in here in a lot of different places. Um, some are really skeptical and cynical about being here in kind of this Christian-y sort of room. Uh, some of us are really excited to be here. Some of us are already just exhausted and worn down from school and responsibilities and demands. And some of us are really angry and Trump came off of a really hard weekend. Uh, Father, regardless of where we are, if we're hurting, lonely, bitter, uh, excited, I pray that you would meet us. And that you would show us yourself. Show us that you are actually way more beautiful and valuable than we think you are. Would you do that in my heart and in the hearts of these folks tonight as we look at this and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So my wife Catherine and I have, for the past several months, really gotten into the show Friday Night Lights. Don't know how you how that sits with you. Uh, heard some hisses. I don't know if that was a yes or just a hiss, but um, we've gotten really into the show. So it took us kind of a while to get into it. We started watching a couple episodes here or there. We couldn't really go all in. It was really not until uh, maybe halfway through season two that we just started going all in, like hard in the paint every night, coming home watching an episode, just plowing through it, and. We're, we're at the end. We have one episode left. We have, well, I don't know how it ends. So you can't tell me anything or shout out to me anything. Um, so I don't know how it ends. And it's, we've been sitting on the last episode for a week and a half, just waiting 
to watch it, like waiting for this kind of special moment when we can kind of close it all out. But we don't want to do it because you know when that happens. When you watch it, it's over. And that's just really sad. Like I remember when I finished watching The Office for the first time, I wept like a small child. <laughs> it felt like I'd said bye to my friends, which is really pathetic when you say that out loud. But... <laughs> But may, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm weird in sort of holding off the last episode to watch it before it all ends. But my guess is, if you think about it, you can relate with this instinct of, ah, uh, something is so good. When you enjoy something, you don't want it to end. I mean, some of y'all have had these experiences where you've had this, like, the, ma- the amazing meal, the expensive meal that maybe your parents uh, paid for, and it was awesome. And it was like every bite you was savoring and just, you're just stuffing your brains. And then like you wash it all down with a milkshake at the end. And it's an amazing meal. Every bite was awesome. But it ends, and you're hungry like three hours later, right? That was me, I guess. Um, or if you have like the, the, the awesome moment, like if y'all, like whenever like this awesome moment is happening, you pull out your phone and try to document it because you want to preserve that moment forever. But then when you go back and look at the pictures, like it doesn't, it, like it feels like there's something missing or maybe you try to replicate and relive the moment and it feels a little kind of hollow, like you can't quite get what that moment gave you in the first place. And there's this really sobering reality to life that things that make you happy on this earth eventually end. Like the happiness eventually runs out. Like you have this awesome achievement, you work for this goal, you get it, it's awesome, and then sooner or later you forget about it because you're preoccupied with like another goal that you want to go achieve. Or you get really amped up about this new relationship and it's really exciting and life-giving and eventually you either get bored or you at some point get disappointed in the other person. And so here's the question, is there happiness available to us that's permanent, that's lasting? Or really, are we just sort of doomed to a life of everything kind of being like sand in your hands that just sort of slips through your fingers and you can't quite grab it, can't quite last? The crazy thing about that passage that I just read is that Jesus tells you, yes, that lasting permanent joy is available to you. A joy that doesn't make you like happy, clappy, excited, smiley all the time, but a joy that's much deeper. A joy that lasts even in the midst of suffering. So that you can be like Paul in the Bible when he says in 2 Corinthians, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Both and. Sorrowful, hardship, and yet there's a joy underneath that doesn't go away. Jesus is going to tell us in this passage, he is that joy. The treasure that he's talking about these stories is him. And he is available to you. That you can have uh, everything that this world offers. And if you don't have him, then it will all be like sand. Or you can have nothing that this world offers. And if you have him, then you will have a joy that surpasses all understanding. So how do we get it? That's what I want to explore tonight from this passage. The way that you get it, Jesus is going to show us that we need three things. We need opened eyes. We need deepened desires, and we need melted hearts, which I realized as I was planning this, it sounds a little bit like Coach Taylor's uh, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. But that's just what Jesus is saying tonight, so Eric Taylor's ripping off the Bible. Um, So 
opened eyes, deepened desires, melted hearts. And just to cite my sources, I'm getting a lot of help from one of my friends who's an REF campus minister, Brent Webster. Y'all don't know who Brent is, but shout out to Brent for your help. So we're going to look at first what it means when he says we need opened eyes. So look back at the story. It's, it's three verses long, but there's two different stories here. The first story is about a dude that is uh, about a guy in a field who's not looking for anything. He's just doing life. He's living life. And he stumbles upon this treasure in the ground, which you need to know back in the day that would not have been all that uncommon. They didn't have banks back then. So if you had something of value and uh, you needed to go out of town on a trip or there was like an invading army coming, you would dig a hole and put it in the ground. That's where people put stuff. But the problem was if you left and you never came back or you forgot where you put it, like stuff was just kind of buried all over the place. So here's this dude who's just presumably a day laborer digging in a field and he comes upon this treasure of unspeakable value. What was that? (laughs) Seriously, what was that? We need to clean the air filter. Um, Okay. So dude is not searching, digs a hole, finds the treasure. Second story is about a guy that is searching. He is on a treasure hunt. He's a pearl merchant, which means he's regularly going to the market looking for pearls, and he is sifting through the pearls that were available at this particular stand, and he sees one that catches his eye, and his jaw drops, and unspeakable, valuable pearl that he finds. Two guys, two stories, both find something. Now, and it it reminds me of this uh, social experiment that that the Washington Post did a couple of years ago. Y'all have probably seen this. The the video is available on the YouTubes. But uh, many of y'all have probably seen it. But it's the the one where Joshua Bell, who's this, if you don't know, is this world-renowned musician. They put him in a a, a subway station in D.C. in the early morning rush hour of the kind of the hustle and bustle people getting to work. And they put him up next to a trash can and have him play a violin, which was worth $3.5 million. And he sits there and he plays for 45 minutes. He plays six pieces, which according to the article were some of the most intricate pieces of music ever written. And the question is, okay, for 45 minutes, are people going to see this beauty, this treasure right in front of their faces, or are they going to pass by? And over the course of 45 minutes, uh, roughly 1,100 people passed through that particular subway station, and six stopped and listened which means that 1,094 people saw what he was doing as really common and ordinary, and they walked by. And six people saw it as treasure, as beauty. And Jesus is saying, there is treasure available, and it's right in front of your face. But do you have opened eyes to see it? The first guy... The field, it was not like beachfront, high-end real estate. It was an ordinary field that no one else wanted. It was a field with shrubs and rocks and bushes, but to him, it was not ordinary. He saw treasure. The second guy, he's looking at all these pearls. Like hundreds of other shoppers would have looked at all these pearls, and they would have seen them all as ordinary and as common. And this guy saw what no one else did. He saw treasure. 
Both guys found treasure because their eyes were open. They could see it. And Jesus is saying, I am the treasure that is available to you. But the question is, do you see it? Because Jesus is saying, I am so ordinary and common, I'm easy to miss. There are a whole lot more exciting things out there than Jesus. Jesus is saying, I mean, just think about this. Jesus was a a, a homeless peasant that wandered around a Middle Eastern region uh, in a really obscure area 2,000 years ago. There are a lot more exciting things that you could do with your life than to be preoccupied with Jesus. Uh, he, he left the glory of heaven and he came to serve people and feed people and wash people's feet and like hang out with people that didn't have any friends. That's so ordinary and boring and common. Like getting an internship in New York is way more exciting. Like that's so much cooler. Studying abroad and drinking Italian wine from a villa overlooking the Mediterranean, that's way more awesome and cool and exciting than Jesus. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He left the highest of highs to come to the lowest of lows. That's what actually makes him so profoundly beautiful and simultaneously so easy to miss because he's so ordinary. He's so common. So I want to talk to two different groups on this point before we move on real quick. I want to talk to those in the room that would identify yourselves as Christians. People that claim to believe all this stuff. If we could be honest for just a second and just talk honestly. My guess is there are a lot of people in this room that would claim to be Christians. And if you're honest, you are bored with Christianity, with God, with the church. Just bored. It's not exciting to you. It's ordinary. It's common. You know all the answers. Maybe you came up in church and in small group, like you you know what all, like you've heard all this before. But what's exciting to you is like experimenting. There's a lot of new stuff here at UT. So there's new people, there are new parties, there are new opportunities, there's new adventures. There's like everything new is what is exciting. And if I can gently encourage you, to take another look at Jesus again. Because maybe the reason that you're bored with God or the church or Christianity is because you see it as just an ordinary field, an ordinary pearl. And there's treasure right in front of your face, but you can't see it. And now I'm going to talk to those that uh, would not identify yourselves as Christians. And I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons why you don't believe this stuff. Um... My guess is that you're asking big, loud, philosophical, academic, intellectual questions, and I want to gently nudge you and encourage you to say, those questions are important, and I'd love to sit down and process those questions with you if you want to, but I want to encourage you to not miss the simple profundity of just the ordinary beauty of who Jesus is, ultimate humility. That maybe you're getting lost in the big picture and you've just missed how ordinary and yet profoundly invaluable he really is. Treasure's in front of your face, but you have to have opened eyes to see it. That's the first thing Jesus is showing us. If you want treasure, if you want that deep, permanent joy, you've got to be able to see it first. But also, secondly, you need deepened desires. Deepened desires. Let me set this up this way. Uh, As many of you know, I have two small kids. I have almost a five-year-old, Zoe Kate, who's a girl, and I have almost a three-year-old, Reed, 
who's not a girl, and they are at this stage in life where they just fight over toys. Like, they, they don't know how to share. They want the same toys. So if one of them is playing with a car, the other one wants it, which is exhausting as a parent. But, like, we're, we're at that stage. So they're fighting over everything they want to share, like, screaming, hysterical, crying. They're willing to hurt each other over, like, a car or whatever. And I don't do this as a parent. Just uh, disclaimer. I don't do this. But I know how to end every fight if I wanted to. The way that I could end every one of these fights is to go to my daughter and to say, Zoe Kate, if you give that card a read, I will give you a cupcake. Because I know that my daughter's deepest desire is sugar. I don't know where she got it from, but she loves sugar. And so if I were to offer her that, the car becomes instantly worthless. Like what she was fighting over, willing to hurt her brother over, becomes garbage. She would sell, she would get rid of this cart, she would get rid of her family, she would get rid of the house for a cupcake. Her heart's deepest desires. Sugar. Willing to give up everything in order to serve that deeper thing. And that's actually the same reality that's happening in this story. These two guys, it says, sold everything that they had because they deeply loved something else. There was something else underneath that everything else instantly became expendable, doesn't matter anymore, becomes worthless to them in a sense, willing to give it all up. And what Jesus is doing, he's showing you how the human heart actually operates and works. That the human heart is driven by what you love. You are not driven by ideas. You are not driven by your political convictions, by your social opinions. The thing that drives every decision you make is what you love. I, uh, you know, what you decided to wear, uh, what you choose to eat, how long you're going to talk afterward at RUF, how you talk to people, uh, what major you're deciding. It's all based off of what you love. What you actually love controls your life. And you know who knew this? Mumford and Sons. Don't know what you think about Mumford and Sons? I kind of, I've I've jumped off the bandwagon. Maybe I should jump back on. I don't know. But you remember what they said in their first good album. Um, I'm getting snarky now. Sorry, forgive me. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Where you're putting your heart's desire, that's what's controlling your life. Which, by the way, they're just hijacking Jesus. Jesus said it first. Uh, where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And whatever your treasure is, you are willing to sacrifice and give up everything for. Everything becomes expendable. Uh, let me give you two examples of this. One, a lighthearted example. One, less lighthearted. More, less, heavy. He- it's heavier. So here's the lighthearted example. You know when your friends, or maybe some of you, pair off with a special someone, and uh, you're at that first stage of the relationship, kind of the ooey, gooey, uh, gushers kind of uh, part of the relationship, you know, where it's just, uh, it's, it's, um, it's exciting and it's exhilarating and it's who it, you spend your time with each other all the time. You're texting each other all the time and you love it and everybody on the outside thinks it's pathetic and obnoxious and gross and we hate you for it. But what you're actually doing in that moment, what you're doing in that point of your life, is you're saying, this is such a deep love for me. I'm willing to sacrifice my friends for this. 
I'm not going to hang out with my friends. I'm going to go all in with my new treasure. You give up your, your friends. Uh, you give up your family. Uh, some of you give up sleep just because you're up late all the time with them, which obviously affects giving up some of your grades. Some of you I wouldn't be surprised at all if that means that you're also giving up some of your sexual boundaries where there is this love deep down that you have to have so that you're willing to give up stuff for. That's the more lighthearted example. Uh, the heavier example is, uh, my guess is you felt this profoundly in some of your families where your parents, probably most of your dads or some of your dads rather, um, so treasured his job that what he sacrificed was you. That he was always at work, always on the phone, always on the computer, always responding to emails, and he wasn't present. Because he said, this is my treasure, and therefore I'm willing to make sacrifices for it. It just happened to have been his family. He provided for you, he gave you stuff, but you didn't get him. And Jesus is saying, if you want Jesus to be your treasure, you have to ask yourself the big hard question is, what do you love? What has you by the heart? What is it that you are willing to give up your time for, your energy for, your money for, your friendships for, your body for, your integrity for? Because we're all doing it. We're all making sacrifices. Every one of us has this golem inside of us where we look at something and say, this is my precious I'm not going to do the voice, that would be odd, but uh, we look at something and say, this is precious to me and I'm willing to give up everything for it. So the question for you is, what do we do about it? Buddhism will tell you the problem is your desires. Your desires are too strong. So take some spiritual ambient and calm it down. You need to chill out some. You're, you're, the problem is that your desires are too strong, you're too wild, you're too out of control, so chillax a bit. And there are some churches that will tell you the same thing. That will say it's your youthful passions that are just out of control, and Christianity kind of needs to be for you kind of like a wet, cold blanket that just kind of calms you down a little bit. Stop doing all of that stuff that you love doing and start being more disciplined and start doing all this boring stuff that you hate doing. That's what a lot of churches have told you. And Jesus looks at you and me and he says, the problem is not that our desires are too strong. The problem is that our desires are too weak. He's not saying turn down the volume on your desires. He's saying crank them up. Crank them up. C.S. Lewis said the same thing in his famous little essay called The Weight of Glory. Let me read you what he says. Unbelievably profound. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is trying to show you he will never become your treasure unless your desires deepen. Unless you're willing to say, everything in this universe that I'm using to make myself happy is you settling. It's you settling. He will never become treasure to you unless you're willing to look at everything that the universe offers you and say, it's expendable. 
He is way more valuable than anything else. We have, let's be honest, we have settled for Netflix and Instagram and casual hookups and 4.0 GPAs to satisfy our deepest longings, and they're not quite making us happy, are they? We've settled. And Jesus is saying, if you want permanent joy, your desires need to deepen. Stop settling for cheap pleasure. There's more available. But you've got to deepen your desire. Well, how do you do that? Well, let's look at the last thing. We need melted hearts. Opened eyes, clear, <laughs> clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. Opened eyes, deepened desires, melted hearts. And I'm going to say something that these two stories say pretty clearly that you don't want me to say, but that are pretty obvious. But following Jesus is going to cost you. And he tells you that up front. Uh, If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and die. It's going to cost you. Jesus is saying following me is going to, you're going to lose stuff. Stuff will get lost. And, And that's actually how you can know that you're really a Christian. It's when it starts to cost you something to identify and follow him. Uh, To be on a public university and to have people know that you believe the Bible will cost you uh, some major uh, social points in the classroom. Because there will be really smart people with PhDs that will look at you and think you just committed intellectual suicide. Costs you. For you to be in your sorority and say to your sorority sisters, I'm not going to get trashed this weekend at the date party. Uh, most people and most folks will look at you and think you are really uncool and really weird. Uh, To have a biblical view of sex and sexuality and marriage in our culture, you will automatically be seen as bigoted and wrong. It, It costs you. To follow Jesus costs you something. But again, that's not weird. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's giving up stuff for what they truly Love, But I want you to notice something. In this story, these guys give up everything that they have, but what's their motive? I don't know if you caught it. It's just really quickly. In verse 44, it says this. It says, Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. They were moved, compelled by joy. Which means God's not just after your service and your sacrifice and your obedience. He's after your joy. Think about this. Think about what it might, what, what motivates you to serve God, assuming that's you. If you're someone that would consider yourself a religious type that's trying to follow Jesus, trying to, you know, do whatever, what motivates you? My guess is most of us, uh, it's one of four different options. It's guilt, which is I've been really bad and I, I need to start being really good. I've made some big mistakes and now I need to clean my life up. Guilt. If it's not guilt, it's fear. If I don't clean my life up, I'm afraid what other people will think about me when they find out. Or I'm afraid that God's going to punish me if I keep going down this road. If it's not guilt, if it's not fear, it's duty. Just sheer duty. God has done so much for me, I owe him. Or it's pride. I'm a good person, and good people go to church and go to RUF and worship, and they're nice to other people. That's what good people do. And so let me tell you from personal experience, pride, duty, fear, and guilt, those things will all change your behavior. Uh, They'll help you stop cussing. 
They'll help you stop drinking so much. Uh, they'll get you more religiously involved. You'll, you'll maybe even start reading the Bible, praying. But those things will never, ever make God precious to you. You will never see him as treasure. The only motivation that will allow him to become beautiful to you is joy. Joy. Which is really interesting because joy is the same motive that drove Jesus. He calls us to a same motive in which he operated out of. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Think about that. Does that make any sense? Joy is what drove him to the cross. To give up everything out of joy. But think about it. He had everything and out of joy he gave everything away. He traded in applause for shame. He traded in comfort for torture. He he traded in power for weakness. He traded in validation for rejection. He traded in life for death. What in the world would compel anyone to, out of joy, give up everything? Well, just like the people in the story, it's because he found his treasure. He found his pearl of great price that he was willing to give up everything in order to get. He said, I'm willing to give it all up because there's one thing that I don't have that I'm willing to give up everything in order to have. Do you know what it is? You. It's you. You are his treasure. You are his pearl of great price where he's saying, I'm willing to give up everything for you. I would rather die than to live without you. The gospel tells you long before Jesus becomes the pearl of great price to us, we were the pearl of great price for him. And when you see that, that's what melts your heart. That's what deepens your desires. That's what gives you joy to give up everything for him because he gave up everything for you. You know, I'll I'll end with this. Um, When I was dating my wife, now wife, when I was dating my girlfriend at the time, Catherine, uh, we knew that it was a little inappropriate to drop the L-bomb kind of early on in the relationship. So, but we really liked each other. And so what we would do when we were on the phone and hang up with each other, we dated long distance. And so we would just tell each other instead of, I love you, we'd say, I, I, like, I really like you. Like that song, I really, really, really like you. And so, uh, or we'd say, I'd miss you. But eventually, you know, Towards uh, when we were kind of getting close to engagement, that door opened and we started using that language of I love you, and it was exhilarating. I mean, it was like drugs to be able to tell someone I love you and have them tell you back. It was so thrilling and exciting. And we have uh, known each other for 11 years now, been married for almost 10. And now when she tells me she loves me, it is something so much more richer and so much more meaningful because she actually knows me now. She didn't know me when we were dating and we were just infatuated, but she knows me now. She knows how selfish I am. She knows how deeply angry I am. She knows how easily uh, bitter I can be and how easily I resent people and hold grudges. She knows about my arrogance. She knows about how self-absorbed I am. She knows how short I can be with our children. She knows the dark, evil places in my life. And she still says, I love you and I'm willing to stick this out with you. 
And that means something so much more deeply profound than just some blurt from uh, an infatuated girlfriend. But this is telling you that that's actually how God loves you. That he sees everything that there is to see about you. He knows everything there is to know about you. And he spares nothing for you. Because you're his treasure. You are his pearl of great price. And so if you, you want to know what the foundation is to permanent, lasting joy, it is not your love for him. Because that is fickle and it goes away and comes and goes. The foundation to permanent lasting joy is knowing and experiencing his love for you. Do you see it? Do you know it? Are you melted by it? That's the invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would, uh, in some sense, electroshock our hearts back into reality. That we have grown, uh, for some of us, have grown cold and distant and bored with you. We've seen you as just ordinary and common. And yet there is treasure to be found in you right in front of our faces. Because you have given up everything for us. I pray, Father, that that would become a deep reality in our own hearts and in our own lives. And would we be able to, uh, just like the, the, the men in these stories, give up everything because we see it as so expendable compared to the joy and the treasure of knowing you and being known by you. Father, I pray that you would do this in my heart and do this in the hearts of these folks here. We pray this in Jesus' name.